this morning, we're actually going to look at two heroes of the faith. And we're not going to look at their whole life, but just an incident, one heroic incident that both of them experienced at the same time. Their names are Paul and Silas. And we find their story in the book of Acts, chapter 16. Paul and Silas, heroes of faith. As you turn to Acts chapter 16, let me just set up the story for you a little bit. Paul has already been on one missionary journey. And on his first missionary journey, he had proclaimed the gospel mainly in Galatia and Pamphylia, in what we now now know as the eastern part of Asia Minor or the country of Turkey. And now Paul is about to go on what we call his second missionary journey. And we see in the first several verses of chapter 16 that accompanying him will be another Jewish believer named Silas, and then Timothy, who was half Greek and half Jewish, and then Luke, who was a Gentile believer. Now, the reason they started on this journey was so that Paul wanted to go back to all of the cities that they had been to on their first missionary journey and see how they were doing and to strengthen those believers in those churches. And you can see that in chapter 15, verse 36. And as they start this journey, it says in chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew in numbers. And it goes on in verse 6 to say this. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Now, that's that dark green area, kind of area in the middle of what is now modern-day Turkey. Now, this is where they had been on their first missionary journey. And, and so this is what they set out to do, to go and strengthen these churches that were, were there. But then it goes on to say something unusual. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word of God in Asia. Now, that sounds different, doesn't it? They're trying to go somewhere that they haven't been before, and it's the province of Asia. And and when it says the province of Asia here, this is not like our modern-day Asia. We're not thinking of China and India and the Far East when it says the province of Asia here. Um, The province of Asia uh, is uh, in that um, salmon-colored area on the map over here, over the western portion of of, of what uh, we now know as Turkey. And there are some important cities there that they want to go and visit. They want to bring the gospel there. Cities like uh, Ephesus and Philadelphia and Laodicea and Colossae. and, And Paul wanted to preach the gospel to them. But it says that the Holy Spirit was preventing them. Now, I don't, we don't know by what method the Holy Spirit was preventing them, whether or not the Holy Spirit was speaking to their hearts and saying, you know, don't go there right now, or whether it was something external that the Holy Spirit was doing that was preventing them from, from going there. What we do know is that one way or another, the Holy Spirit isn't letting them go into this province of Asia. In verse 7, it says this, When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. Now, Mysia is this... Part, northern part of the region of this province of Asia. And the Holy Spirit, we already said, is not letting them go into Asia. So they come to the border of Mysia, and instead of trying to go into Mysia, they turn north and try to go into Bithynia. It's that, that lighter green area you see in the map there. It ran along the northern borders of Galatia and the province of Asia. So they're trying to go into Bithynia. And it says this, they tried to enter Bithynia, but 
the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So again, the Holy Spirit is restricting them from preaching the gospel somewhere. Now, this must have seemed really counterintuitive to them. Can you, you imagine that? Because Jesus had said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone, everywhere. Right? He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Preach the gospel to everyone, everywhere. And so that's what they're trying to do. But yet, the Holy Spirit is restricting them. So picture this for a minute. They're really kind of getting hemmed in here. Here they are. They've proclaimed the gospel uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. They've already been to Galatia. The Spirit won't let them go into Asia. The Spirit won't let them go north into Bithynia. Um, they're, they're kind of right in the middle there, and, and they're kind of hemmed in. They're kind of boxed in. Now, I would think that would be a little bit frustrating. Everywhere they turn, the Spirit's saying, don't go there. Have you ever felt that way? Kind of boxed in? Like, like every way you're going, you're trying to go and do this and that and the other thing, and the doors keep on closing, right? You ever felt that way? Or am I the only one? Right? Doors keep on closing, and you're saying, well, well God, I want to serve you. I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to honor you with everything I do, and these doors keep on closing, and I don't know which way to turn. Can I tell you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are someone who wants to honor God with your life and, and honor God with who you are and have God's purposes in your life, when all of these doors begin to close, expect God to open a window somewhere. I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but the Bible says that all things work together for good for those who, are, who love God and are called according to his purposes. If you're trying to, to, to organize your life around God's purposes and what he wants, and all these doors start to shut... Expect God to open a window somewhere at some point. And so it says here, verse 8, they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Now, Troas is this point, this city, on the very western edge of, of Asia. They passed by all the cities there and went to this um, port city of Troas. And they haven't been able to share the gospel with anyone, but God is getting ready to throw open this great, awesome window of opportunity for them. And this is where the story is about to take an important turn and where really our heroic story begins. We come to verses 9 and 10 and it says this. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel them. Well, that's exciting, isn't it? I mean, they finally have direction from God. Have you all experienced that, right? When you finally, you're, you're wondering which way am I going to turn, and you finally, it becomes clear, this is God's direction, this is the way we're going. They finally have the green light and the window of opportunity that God himself has opened. They have the blessing of God. So uh, from here on in, um, they should see nothing but blessing, right? Nothing but smooth sailing and blessing, right? Because, after all, this is God's direction. This is God's leading, right? And in verse 12, it says this. They traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Now, I don't want you to gloss over that. This is one of the most important historical statements in the entire Bible. This is huge. Macedonia 
is in Europe. This is the first time the gospel is being preached on the continent of Europe. This event shaped world history for centuries to come. It's because of this event that the gospel spread to Greece and Italy and to Germany and France and Spain and England and eventually the Scandinavian countries as well. It's because of this that all of Europe became Christianized and eventually became um, synonymous with the term Christendom. You know, and God could have, think of it, God could have sent them east, right, to, to uh, India and the Far East and Persia. He could have sent them north to the Slavic peoples or south to Egypt and Africa, but he sent them here to Macedonia. And I, I don't know the extent that they could understand the, the impact of this, of the impact of what was going to happen here. But from the vantage point of history, we can clearly see that these are heroes of the faith and that what they are about to do will affect history for the next 2,000 years. So they come to Philippi. And uh, let me give you just a little bit of background on the city of, of Philippi, right? Uh, Philippi, it says here, was a Roman colony. And what that meant is that the Roman government... They, they would establish colonies all throughout um, the empire because they wanted cities in every area of the empire that were very favorable to the government in Rome. And the way they would establish these colonies is they were people who would be willing to move, um, maybe uh, retired military or other people who would be willing to move, and to entice them to move to these colonies, they would give them special privileges like being exempt from paying taxes. All right, how many of you, if the uh, U.S. government set up a city somewhere and said, if, if you'll be willing to move there, you never have to pay taxes again? You might be enticed, right? All right, well, that's what was happening here. They wanted these uh, pro-Roman colonies, so they said, you can move here, and you never have to pay taxes again. And, so, and there were other incentives as well. And so these were very pro-Roman uh, cities dotted throughout the Roman Empire. Some people call them a Rome away from Rome. And... Uh, I mean, that's not a joke. That's, that's what they called them. And so let's see what's happened here. Here they've been called by God. God's opened this window of opportunity at Philippi. And it says in verse 13, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city, outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those who was listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. Now that means probably a godly um, uh, convert to Judaism is that type of expression in the book of Acts. You see, she was a worshiper of God, but they weren't a believer in Jesus, yet a Gentile who had converted to Judaism. It says, so she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, Come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Well, all right. Now, um, I've often wondered, how did she persuade them? Because if they needed to be persuaded, right? I mean, there had to be something. I think, it's not written here, I think it was a meal. I, I mean, think about it. There's four guys backpacking through Europe, right? And uh, they're probably not staying at the Ritz-Carlton. And they're probably saying it's something that was the first century equivalent of hostels. And they're not eating well. And I can just imagine Paul being reticent. He has to be convinced. And, you know, um, uh, Timothy saying, you know, this, this is a lot nicer place to stay than those hostels and all that. And, uh, um, and they eat that first meal. And so I was like, you know, Paul, we, this is, yeah, we need to stay here. And so 
I don't know. It's not in the Bible. If you disagree with me, that's fine. We can ask when we get to heaven. All right. But either way, they were persuaded to stay there. And uh, so it looks like they're off to a good start, right? Because here they've got their first convert here and, uh, and everything seems to be going well. And, uh, you know, now they have a place to stay and uh, it's better than where they were staying before. We come to verse 16. It says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Now, here they're beginning to get some opposition. I mean, it looks like things are beginning to go a little bit sideways. I mean... Uh, at least outwardly, it looks that way. Now, now, when you first read it, you might get the idea that this is something good. Why would they be upset that she's telling you that these people are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved? But, and it looks like it, maybe that's a good thing. But when you look at it closer, you find out it's really not. It says that um, when she had a spirit, the word for spirit here means a python spirit or a serpent spirit. This is a demon. This is a demonic spirit and demonic opposition. And the gospel, think about it, the gospel had not been preached in Europe before, and the devil liked it that way. He didn't want these people hearing about the transforming, life-saving, life-giving power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And you can be sure, if you decide to do something for God that people are going to hear about this life-saving Jesus through you, the devil's going to oppose that. He doesn't just want to lay down and let you do that. He wants to oppose that. And then uh, it's very likely here that this girl who was following them is mocking them. She's, she's kind of trolling them in some of today's vernacular. Mocking them. These men are servants of the Most High God. <laughs> They're telling you the way to be saved. That's probably the, the type of, um, uh, of voice that, that she's using. She's foolishness, making fun of this. And our heroes have to put up with this mocking and foolishness. And it says, verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. It says Paul was frustrated. It says he was irritated. It says he was so annoyed. Now stop there for a minute. That doesn't sound very apostle-like, does it? I mean, that doesn't, doesn't sound very apostle, pastor, even Christian-like, right? I mean, one of the ways that you know you're a Christian is you never get annoyed, right? I mean, you're often grieved in your spirit. <laughs> but you're never annoyed, right? Oh, brother, that just grieves my spirit so much. Sister, that grieves my spirit so much, you know? But you're never annoyed. Well, Paul here is not only annoyed, but it says he's so annoyed, visibly annoyed, but I want you to notice, Paul knew who to be annoyed at. If you're going to be annoyed, be annoyed at the devil. Right? I mean, don't be annoyed with your spouse. Don't be annoyed with your husband. Don't be annoyed with your wife. Don't be annoyed with your parents. Don't be annoyed with your children, with your co-workers, and everyone like that. If you're going to be annoyed, be annoyed at the work of the devil. Be annoyed at the, at the work that he's trying to do in, in your world. 
Be annoyed that he's still lying to people, that he's still deceiving people, that he's still bringing people into bondage. Be annoyed at the work of the devil. Paul was annoyed at the work of the devil. And he didn't want these people to get confused and associate the gospel with anything to do with demons and the work of the devil. So he casts out this devil. And that, you know what? And that's really cool, isn't it? That's really awesome. He casts out this devil. That's something that these people have not seen before. They've seen this girl uh, telling the future. I know she's got some type of spirit. And wow, that looks, that looks powerful. But all, all of a sudden, someone is here who's more powerful than all of that. At his name, that spirit is quiet. At his name, that spirit leaves. That's something they haven't seen before. Jesus has authority over demons during his life here, and Jesus has authority over demons as the risen Christ, working by the Holy Spirit through his body of believers. And that's awesome. Here's this awesome demonstration of God's power for those who have never heard before. And you think... Things would just take off from here, right? The news would spread and things would just get, there'd be a revival happen. But let's look at it. Verse 19. It says, When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs, unlawful, for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, at first, that sounds odd, doesn't it? They brought him to the marketplace. I mean, why go find the judge at the grocery store? Right? However, in those days, the reason they went there is because most cities, and Roman cities especially, were built around this big open area, you know, called the agora, the marketplace. And so you would have everybody at the marketplace doing business, selling their wares, selling this and that and the other thing. Then there'd be someone over here, maybe on some steps, a philosopher would be talking and all the disciples are gathered around listening to him. Then there's a philosopher over here and he's talking and uh, all his disciples, he's saying why that philosopher is all wrong and, and he's got his disciples here. And while all of this is going on, um, there would be uh, the judges holding court. And especially in Roman colonies, there were always two magistrates holding court out in the open. So that's why they come in. They drag them to the marketplace to face these two magistrates and they bring these accusations. They seize Paul and drag them there. In the next verse it says this, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. Now, that's kind of odd too, isn't it? I mean, why would this crowd here at the marketplace join in this attack so readily? And they're just milling around there, and they hear this, and they join right in. I mean, they didn't see what happened. They weren't there when it happened. They hadn't heard the girl's testimony about what happened. They didn't hear Paul and Silas' defense about what happened. Just uh, the, the, these men are Jews, and they're throwing us into, into confusion here and advocating all these customs. Why did they join in so readily? And it's likely what we're seeing here is some very anti-Jewish reaction. Because the Emperor Claudius, they think, we think about a year before this happened, is when the Emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome. And so Roman opinion about, about Jews was already very negative at this time. And so Philip, by being a Roman colony, the opinion about Jews was already very null. And you'll note that they, they only grabbed Paul and Silas. 
the two Jewish people. They didn't grab Timothy, who was half Greek, and they, they didn't grab Luke, who was completely Gentile. Because if they had grabbed those two, uh, it would have lessened their argument. It would have made it less strong, the emotional part of their argument. And notice the first thing they say is, these men are Jews. And so, likely, it's a very anti-Jewish um, sentiment. But whatever the reason, the whole crowd's now joining in the attack on our heroes. Have you ever felt ganged up on? Well, if you're going to get ganged up on, get ganged up on for the sake of the gospel. Amen. Because you're living for Jesus. It started out with one girl mocking. Then they were seized by a bunch of guys who dragged them to court. And they were probably roughed up on the way. And then they're falsely accused. And now the whole crowd's attacking them. I mean, how would you like that day at the office? And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, well, let's continue. It says, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. But, you know, okay, well, the story, just stripped and beaten, just like that. And just when you thought, you know, okay, well, that's over. You know, we can maybe start over again tomorrow. Verse 23 says, after they had been severely flogged. Now, stop there for a second. When it says they were severely flogged, in Jewish custom, they had a law that said, if someone was going to be beaten, you could only beat them 39 times. And that was it. You, for anything, you could not go beyond that. But the Romans didn't have any such law. The Romans were brutal. They would beat you until the person who was overseeing the be beating felt like, hey, that's good enough. And uh, Romans were known to be skillful at being able to beat someone to within an inch of their life. It was a, a terrible lashing. It was a horrendous beating. So after they were, had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So now, Paul and Silas, they are really suffering here. They're hurting, they're bleeding, they need medical attention, but they're being denied medical attention. The jail they were put in was nothing like the jails that we know today. I mean, I'm not saying they're good, but I mean, there was no concrete floors. There was no running water. Um, there was, it was uh, um, not food brought to them or, or anything like that. It would have been um, probably like a large basement that had converted into a jail, uh, kind of like a holding cell with bars and gates and, and some uh, chains and irons and implements of torture. Oh, and rats. And uh, all sorts of vermin and other stuff, and a mud floor. And so they're likely here. Their their feet are in stalks. They're they're in agony, and there's likely vermin and rats and mice and all sorts of other things running around that they can't do anything about. And uh, and I want you to see several things about this situation. Okay, first, it's legally unjust. Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and and as Roman citizens, they had a right to a full hearing before any punishment could be meted out. And then, and they also had the right, if they were found guilty, to make an appeal before any punishment would be carried out. And then secondly, it was morally unjust in the eyes of God. I mean, Paul and Silas have done nothing worthy of punishment. Their accusers are motivated by greed, and they violated God's commandment about uh, false testimony against your neighbor. And the magistrates, who appeared to be man-pleasers, condemned innocent men in order to please the desires of an angry mob. 
It's legally unjust. It's morally unjust. And remember, now this is the first place that they're preaching the gospel in Europe. It's like, hey, welcome to Europe. Enjoy your stay. It wasn't a great welcome to Europe. They're suffering intensely for Jesus. I mean, and what are we to say about this suffering? I mean, they did what God wanted them to, didn't they? They followed God's plan. They weren't going against God. They were following God's plan. They followed the Holy Spirit. They brought the good news. They set a young girl free from demonic oppression. And now look at their situation. I don't know about you, but I think I'd be discouraged. How many of you feel like you might be discouraged as well? I'd be wondering, God, what's going on here? God, what, what's happening here? Did we miss it? Did, did we do something wrong? Did we miss something along the way? God, are you here? God, are you even hearing us? Do you see the situation? God, I'd, I'd be wondering, God, has God abandoned us? And I, I want you to mark this down. Mark this down, whether you write it down or you make a strong mental note of it. Suffering does not mean that God isn't in a situation or that God isn't leading you or that God has abandoned you. And I know that most of you could probably say that as well as I can. But as much as we know that in our heads, as much as we can repeat uh, memory verses about that, it seems that as soon as we face a little opposition, it's really easy to go to that place. God, where are you? What have you done? Uh, I, I feel abandoned. I feel all alone. It's just really easy. We know the truth in our head, but in our hearts, we're wondering, you know, God, what is going on here? We begin to say, oh, I guess God mustn't be in this. Or, or if he were, this would be a lot easier. But listen to what Paul said one time. This is another occasion. Paul said, I'm going to stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who opposed me. Think of that for a second. How many of us would think, there's so many people opposing me, this must be, mean there's a great door of open uh, opportunity for me. Usually, when we, we see, begin to see all this opposition, we're thinking, okay, time to pack up and move on down the road a little bit or, or go somewhere else. But Paul says, you know, there's many who oppose me and there's a great open opportunity for preaching the gospel presented to me. Just because there's opposition does not mean that God isn't in it or that God isn't with you. It may be that a great door of opportunity for ministry is opening to you. He knows what Peter knew. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, catch this, for the spirit of glory rests on you. That's when the spirit of glory is resting on you. Say, you may be wondering where God is when you're suffering, when you're suffering and, and you're doing his will. Um, he hasn't left you. The spirit of glory is resting on you. And so what will they do? What will they do here in this situation? Well, let's look at it. Verse 25. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. They're praying and singing hymns 
to God. This is amazing. They didn't have a worship team. There was no guitarist. There was no keyboard player, no singers. Just Paul and Silas singing and praising God. I don't know if they had good voices. I don't know if we'd have let them on the worship team or not. But they were praying and singing hymns to God. I mean, they've been falsely accused. I mean, some, sometimes that's enough to send some of us into a spiritual funk right there. You know, well, someone said something that's untrue about me, and we, we just can't function until this person admits it or something. Someone said something untrue, and we can't function. Well, well here they've been falsely accused. Then they were brutally beaten and denied medical attention. You know, I've seen some people who can't concentrate on worship because they broke a fingernail, you know, or something. You know, Pastor, pray for me. It's like, oh, you're going to be okay, right? Or something else. They stubbed their toe. Or something's going on. They can't, they can't worship God. But here they were brutally beaten and they're worshiping God. They're locked in a prison with no end in sight and they're put in an instrument of torture. And they don't know when and if this is going to end. I mean, it's not like they praise God. It's not like Paul said to uh, Silas, you know what, Silas? Why don't we try praising God and maybe God will send an earthquake or something like that or send an angel to set us free. It's not like they did that or knew what was going to happen. Sometimes we read the story with the benefit of knowing what the end is, right? But they didn't know the end. That's not why they're praising God. They're just praising God. Even though they know that this might be the end of the line for them. Those magistrates could call them out and have them executed. Or they could just die there in prison. But they prayed and they sang. Literally, it's praying we're singing praises. That's a literal translation. Praying, we're singing praises. It's the idea that they began to pray and their prayers escalated into praises. Praying, we're singing praises. This isn't the prayer of self-pity. It's not the prayer of despair. It was the kind of prayer that declares God's goodness and righteousness in the midst of something. There's something powerful here. If you can get this, there's something powerful here. When you are suffering, when you're in a place where just things are not going right and uh, the situation is just not right, and, and you learn the ability to pray and praise and declare the rightness of God, not just his righteousness, but God, you're right in everything you do. God, um, I'm in this situation here, and I don't like it, and it's terrible and awful, but God, uh, you're right in everything you do. You're declaring God right and holy. That's a statement of faith. There's power in that. And look what it says. The second half of the verse. They were praying, singing praises, and the other prisoners were listening to them. They were listening to them. They didn't know how to join in, but it got their attention. It arrested their attention. When you can sing and praise God through the midst of trials, it grabs people's attention. It opens people's hearts to listen to the message of the gospel that he's placed in you. One person said it this way, these verses show that the power of the Holy Spirit to raise the believer up into the heavenly realms in the midst of suffering is greater than anything that the might of the Roman Empire can bring against God's servants. 
The worship of Paul and Silas here and later the worship of Christians who were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum and all the way down to our day is proof that believers have already been raised up and seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. When you praise God through sufferings, it's like saying to the world, I'm already raised up and seated in the heavenly realms at Christ Jesus. And the spirit of glory rests on you. And others around you, you know, they may not know how to do it. They may not be able to join in, but it does tend to get their attention. It tends to make people listen and ask questions. How are you doing this? How are you maintaining this kind of an attitude through all of this that you're going through? And that's when you can tell them about the transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ and everything that he has done. That's when you can tell them your story. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And not only does it get their attention, uh, but also it gets God's attention as well. Look at the next verse, verse 26. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken and at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Well, that is awesome, isn't it? That is cool. It's like God has showed up to set the people free. This looks like any, uh, on the par with any miracle you see in the Old Testament. And look at everything that's happening here. The earth is shaking. The prison is shaking. Doors are flying open. Chains are falling off. God has shown up in power. It looks like everyone is being set free by the hand of God. So let's follow the story. Verse 27. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Okay, now, this is not out of some sense of duty on his part. It's not like, you know, okay, now that this has happened, i got some sense of duty to do this. This is because of the Roman system of justice. Because when a person was in prison, the jailer pretty much had a free authority to treat them however he wanted to. He could be harsh with them. He could be lenient with them. He could uh, allow friends to come and uh, uh, give them food and aid them, or he could deny that if he wanted to. The one rule that was upon them that was required was when the magistrates asked them to produce the prisoner that he had to be able to produce the prisoner. And if he couldn't, it was a death sentence. It was assumed that he had let or helped the prisoner uh, to escape. And so now this jailer seeing that, oh my goodness, all the prisoners have escaped, he knew it would be a torturous death for himself and thought it would be better just to end his own life here. But Paul shouted out, verse 28, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, now we're getting somewhere, aren't we? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? How many of you want people to come up and ask you that? How many of you wanted to go through what Paul and Silas went through to get there? All right, then how about this? At least... Whatever, as God leads you along your path, are you willing then to praise God through it? So that someone may ask then, what, you know, what do I need to do to, to learn about this Jesus that, that, that you have? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And notice that it's the Christian who calls out, right? It wasn't all the other prisoners who called out. It's the Christian who shows concern for his welfare. I'm not sure any of the other prisoners would have cared at all if he had just go ahead and run himself through, right? But Paul and Silas care. You know, I've always been amazed at the capacity of Christian people, at the capacity of Jesus followers to care about those who are causing them trouble. 
I mean, people like Corey Ten Boom and Richard Wormbrand and so many others who live out Jesus' teaching to bless those who persecute you. That's not an easy thing. That's not a natural thing. That's a God thing. That's a thing that happens when the spirit of glory is resting on you. Don't hurt yourself, Paul says. And because of that, the jailer is now open to hear the gospel. Going on in verse 31, it says, They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Hey, does it look like God's plan is unfolding here? Does it look like God is in this? You know, God doesn't cause suffering. He's not the author of suffering. He doesn't produce suffering, but he sure does use it to advance his kingdom, doesn't he? And he sure does walk with you through it. If you're suffering, God wants to advance the kingdom of God through you. He's not causing it. He doesn't rejoice in it, but he wants to walk with you in it and express his kingdom through you. Now, let me ask you this, without looking at it, without looking at the scriptures here, the next verse, how many of you think you know what happens next? Any of you just raise your hand if you think, don't shout it out, but a few of you think you know what happens next. All right, now, I can tell you, if it were me, if it were me writing this, I would say something like, and Paul and Silas, Silas rode off into the sunset. Right? Or it would say something like that, by morning, the entire town had heard, and everybody had come to Christ, everyone had been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how I think I would have written. So let's see what it actually does say. Verse 35. It says, When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with this order. Release those men. Now, wait, wait, what? They went back to jail? I mean, I thought God sent the earthquake to free them, right? Isn't that what God sent the earthquake for, to free them? But here now, they're back in jail. Why'd they go back to jail? Well, think about it. If they had just gone off somewhere, then that jailer still would have had to face the Roman legal system. I mean, it would have meant he would die. So here, Paul and Silas, you know, uh, they go, and he's nice enough to, to treat their wounds, and they baptize the whole family. When that's all done, uh, off they walk back to jail. They walk back into the cell. The jailer closes the cell, locks the door. Um, this time, I don't think they were in stock, but, but back to jail. And it turns out when you look at it, that the earthquake really wasn't for Paul and Silas at all. It was for the jailer. Here Paul and Silas had been singing and praising God and all of the other prisoners were listening to them, but the jailer was asleep. He couldn't hear it. And God didn't want him to miss it. So God woke him up. I mean, have you ever uh, had to go wake someone up quickly and you're shaking them awake? Because you don't want them to miss something, you know, or worse, there's a fire or something or whatever. You don't want, but you don't want them to miss something and you shake, shake them awake. Or maybe someone's shaking you awake. Anyone ever been sleeping and someone's like shaking you awake, right? Well, here, God is literally shaking this man awake. That earthquake was for him to shake him awake. It's like God saying, there's something happening here and I don't want you to miss it. So God shakes him awake. It was for his benefit. Have you ever considered the idea that 
when God is working in your life and stuff's happening and stuff's going on that it may not even be so much for you as it is for those who are near you who need to hear the gospel. That that may be who God has in mind. That God may be doing things in and around your life to create an opportunity for those who need the grace of Jesus to be exposed to the grace of Jesus. And maybe when things aren't going uh, the way that you want everything to go in your life and God is at the same time trying to wake up someone who is near you and say, hey, look at this person. Look at this person. See their faith. See how real it is. See how they sing through their trials. There's something genuine here, and you need it. Maybe that's what God is trying to do. Maybe because of your faith through trial, someone is going to ask God, you know, how can I be saved? How can I get what you have? Now that is kingdom thinking. The ability to take your eyes off yourself, off of your own situation, and keep them on God while, while seeing other people's needs. That's kingdom thinking. That's something that only happens when the spirit of glory rests on you. Paul and Silas are giants of the faith. They're heroes of the faith. But the reason that they're heroes, the reason they are such giants, is that they were faithful one situation at a time. They were heroes one situation at a time. They didn't become giants and then go on to do all of this stuff. They were faithful one situation at a time. And at the end, we look back and say, wow, they were giants of the faith. They walked by faith. When it looked like they were going to die in prison, and then in the next situation, and then in the situation after that, they walked by faith. And what they're saying to us is, Jesus was faithful to us. He will be faithful to you. They point to Jesus and say, every victory, every good thing that ever happened is because we trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you trust him too, if you fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to work in your life too. He's going to be faithful in your life too. Throw aside all of the things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles. Fix your eyes on Jesus and run the race that he has marked out for you. And every step of the way, the spirit of glory will rest on you. So as we get ready to conclude this morning, I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll all come back. I just have a couple very short thoughts. The first is this. If you're suffering in some way this morning, you know, sometimes we're on the mountaintop and sometimes we're not. Can I encourage you to make up your mind to do everything that you can to praise God through it? Be with God's people in worship. But beyond that, be a person who finds a quiet place and worships God. If you're in a place of trial and suffering, can I encourage you, get into the Psalms and personalize them. Make them your prayers. Pray the Psalm and see how God's Spirit will encourage you and lift up. Make up your mind. You're going to be a person who praises God through difficult situations. And second, if you're facing difficult challenges, if it seems like you're trying to do everything right, but nothing seems to be going right, Can you have the grace of God to ask God, is there someone near me who you are trying to talk to? Is there someone, is this this really for someone near me? So I can can show the marvelous works of God. Are you trying to get someone, is there someone that I can minister to in the midst of this? That's kingdom thinking. That's heroic faith. 
You don't need to be an apostle. And you don't need to have your name written in the Bible to be a hero of faith. You just need to trust God and praise Him in every situation. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to ask you all to stand with me. And we are going to sing that song again. I'm going to ask the prayer counselors if they come. And if you have a situation that you want someone to agree with you in prayer and praise, I'm going to invite you to come. But before you do, before you come for prayer, I want you to sing this song once through over whatever it is. Acknowledge whatever that thing you're going through is right now and sing your praises over it. After that, you can come for prayer and be dismissed if you like. But let's sing. I sing praises to your name.